Uh, Please open your Bible up to Proverbs chapter 2. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's page 626. Uh, This is one of these sermons that I find hard because I'm so excited about what's going on here that it's hard to get everything packed into a reasonable amount of time. Uh, Don't worry about it. I'll be fine. Uh, Hopefully. (laughs) If I pass out, my notes are here. Someone can come take over. (laughs) It's, it's hard, though, because it's, it's a passage I'm excited about, a chapter I'm excited about. My plan for the rest of the summer, for the weeks I'm preaching, is to go through this opening section of the book of Proverbs a chapter at a time. It's particularly suitable here in chapter 2 because the chapter as a whole really is a coherent whole. In fact, in Hebrew, you can read it as one long, complex sentence with various sub-portions. And so, before I read Proverbs 2, let me scan, or, or, or scan over the page and let me draw your attention to a few of the uh, uh, structural elements of this passage. It's another speech from the father to the son, and so he says, my son. And then you see the first four verses, there are a bunch of conditions. It says, if, if, if. Then if you notice verse 5 and verse 9 say, then. Okay, if you do these various things, then this will happen. Verse 9, or verse 5, then you will understand the fear of the Lord. Verse 9, then you will understand righteousness. And then I'm not entirely thrilled with the ESV translation here because verse 12 and verse 16 open with the exact same word, uh, delivering you, delivering you. ESV kind of smooths it out to make a separate sentence. But so what we see is the first four verses, if, then verses 5 through 11 are then, and then 12 and and 16 introduce these two separate sections of uh, sort of these consequences, how we'll be delivered. And then there's a concluding statement. So try and look out for these, see if you see how this works as I read Proverbs chapter 2. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments within you, by making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasures, Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart, and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you, delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil, men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house sinks down to death and her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. So you will walk in the way of the good and keep to the paths of the righteous. For the upright will inhabit the land, and those with integrity will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land, and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. This is God's word. 
We've been saying in this series that wisdom is skill for life. The skill we need to navigate the various complexities of life. Uh, and maybe two or three weeks ago, I said, uh, quoted John Calvin, who says, begins his book, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, by writing, True and sound religion consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. The great Puritan theologian John Owen develops a similar definition. Owen writes, The sum of all true wisdom and knowledge may be reduced to these three themes, the knowledge of God, his nature and properties, the knowledge of ourselves in reference to the will of God concerning us, and third, skill to walk in communion with God. That is to say, wisdom is taking everything we know about God and applying it to all of our lives. So applying all we know about God to all of our lives. We grow in wisdom that as we take what we know about God from his word, from our walk with him, from the Christian tradition, from his son, and we apply everything we know about God to our walk with him, with our life with him. Owen, I I, I quote John Owen because he goes on to argue that if true wisdom involves knowing God and knowing ourselves and the skill to walk in communion with God, then true wisdom is necessarily Christological. That is to say, true wisdom is shaped by Christ. Jesus comes to reveal God to us. Do you remember what he tells Philip in John 14? He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus comes to show us what God is like. We can know about God's patience and his love uh, from the world round about us, the good gifts that we see in it uh, from the Old Testament, but it's in Christ that we see God's patience and his love, and his justice, and his forgiveness, and his mercy all come together. And we see God for who he is. But in Jesus, we also truly know ourselves. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, the true man. Uh, Paul calls him the second Adam. He calls him, uh, he says, you know, in Genesis 1, humans were made in God's image. But Colossians 1, Paul says Christ is the image of God. He comes to show us what humans were meant to be like. And on the cross, he also shows us how serious our sins are, for we see what our sin deserves. So we learn the true depths of our guilt. So we learn about God and about ourselves only by looking at Jesus, or truly by looking at Jesus. And then Jesus makes a way for us to walk in communion with God. So in 1 Corinthians, Paul says explicitly that Christ crucified Christ on the cross is the wisdom of God. Wisdom is taking all we know about God from his word, from Jesus, into all of our lives, applying it in every area of our life. And Proverbs 2, I want you to see, teaches us three things. This sort of wisdom takes work, it's God's gift, and it will deliver you. First, wisdom takes work. Wisdom takes work. We see that wisdom takes work in the first four verses in these various if statements. The chapter begins, If you receive my words and treasure up my commandments within you. You see, the starting point for this wisdom work is revelation. It doesn't to say go out and figure out things for yourself and invent your own wisdom. 
No, wisdom comes from receiving specific words and practical commands. Verse 2 makes clear that these, uh, the, the father's teaching is not simply the father's opinions. You know, I can teach my kids the right way to mow the lawn is to go side to side, not up and down or whatever, you know, my sort of opinions. That's not what the father's talking about here. Do you see verse 2 says, attend to wisdom. It's the father's teaching insofar as the father teaches God's wisdom. And verse 6 then identifies this same wisdom as coming from the Lord as being the words of his mouth. And so the Father's words are wisdom, which comes from God. The method of wisdom work then, it begins with revelation, but the method is treasuring up received teaching. Wisdom is learned from a mentor, in this case from a father. But the ideal of the book of Proverbs is for one generation to train up the next in the faith. The words of wisdom to be passed on from one generation to the next. We see this pattern repeated throughout the Bible. Moses teaches Joshua wisdom. Naomi teaches Ruth wisdom. Elijah teaches wisdom to Elisha. Barnabas teaches Paul. Paul teaches Timothy. Aquila and Priscilla teach Apollos. Indeed, uh, Jesus commands his disciples He doesn't say just hand out Bibles around the world and people can figure it out for themselves. He says, go into all the nations and make disciples. The pattern for passing the faith on is life-on-life mentorship, discipleship. Parents, Proverbs then sets our mission. Like this father, our mission is to shape our children to be wise, to know God and to apply that knowledge of God to their lives. But this should also shape our lives together as a church. Maybe you've never had a mentor, and you need to find someone to mentor you. Go to an older Christian to say, could you work with me? Could you help me? Would you meet with me to pray once a month? Or maybe you need to find someone to mentor, someone to help out. Wisdom work, it doesn't need to be complicated, uh, this sort of mentoring thing. If you've been walking with the Lord, if you have a relationship with him, you have something to pass on to those who are new to the faith. But this wisdom work, what what the Father focuses on here, depends on a right disposition in the student. The Father can beg the Son to learn wisdom, but the Father can't make the Son learn wisdom. The Son needs to have the right attitude, the right disposition. So learning wisdom begins with commitment. Verse 1 says, receive my words, seize hold of them, grab a hold of them. It's interesting in Proverbs 2 here, this commitment to the Father's words comes before understanding. It says, if you receive my words, you seize hold of them, then, verse 5, you will understand. Wisdom is a skill, and like most skills, you learn it in doing. Okay? You can't just sit down and read the Wikipedia page on riding a bike or milking cows or whatever skill you want to learn and then expect to be able to go do it. You've got to get your hands dirty. You've got to get involved. And so in the same way, we learn wisdom by first getting involved, by being committed. This teaching needs to be valued. The Father says, treasure it up within you. Seek it like silver. Search for it like hidden treasure. Many of the peaks in the North Cascades out here, some that I would be nervous to climb, were first climbed in the 1880s, 1890s, turn of the century, by silver miners looking for silver veins in the mountains. 
without modern equipment, without modern ropes, modern protection, climbing up into the mountains, risking their lives to find silver. Well, the father says, this is more valuable than silver. Seek it like those miners. Be dedicated to it. Wisdom work it, it begins with a commitment. We must value wisdom and teaching properly, and then it has to be internalized. The teaching is treasured up within. Verse 2 tells us how to do it. this. It says, we do it through right attention and a right attitude. We focus our attention on wisdom, and we incline our hearts towards it. We, we, we put our hearts into our work, as we might say. But not only must we be open and receptive, but verses 3 and 4 say we must be active, seeking wisdom, pursuing it. Wisdom takes work. Verse four says, "Call out." Or verse three says, "Call out for it. Raise your voice for understanding." James says the same thing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given. Friends, we can't get wisdom passively. Just sitting here in church doesn't make wisdom in you. You've got to be active. You've got to ask and seek and search for wisdom, insight, and understanding. Like those miners climbing in the cascades. Wisdom takes work, but how do, we, how do we do this practically? What does it look like? If you know you need to grow in wisdom in a certain area in your life, uh, say you struggle with honesty or anger or finances, something like that, then go on the ESV app on your phone or Bible Gateway and look up lying or anger or whatever and write down key verses on a note card and take it with you. And then when you're standing in line at the grocery store, or you're in the waiting room and you're tempted to mindlessly surf on your phone, pull out your note card and memorize Proverbs. Treasure them within. Or maybe you don't have a particular area in mind that you want to work on, but you want to grow in wisdom more generally. Well, July has 31 days. Proverbs has 31 chapters. Start this month, uh, this week, reading a chapter a day, and as a proverb or two from each chapter jumps out to you, write it down on a note card. Commit those to memory. Store them up within you. Treasure them within. I know many of us have not memorized things since 12th grade English when we had to memorize Shakespeare or something like that. Uh, but it is, as we will see as we keep going, it's part of the process. Wisdom takes work. But paradoxically, at the very same time, wisdom is God's gift. Wisdom is God's gift. That's the second truth I want you to see here. Look at the then statements in verse 5 uh, through 8 and then 9 through 11. If you receive the Father's teaching and attend to wisdom, you seek insight, then the result is understanding, a transformed character. Understanding God and how to live rightly. The first result in verses 5 through 8 is a growing understanding of God. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Remember, we talked about the fear of the Lord a few weeks ago. It's, it's, it's fear and awe together. That standing on the rim of the Grand Canyon type feeling. And here it's parallel with knowledge of God, not abstract facts about God, but knowing God personally. It says, if you attend to the Father's teaching, then you will know God himself. And so we see here awe, the fear of the Lord, and intimacy come together. 
The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord and knowing God and ourselves. But then the end of wisdom is knowing God and ourselves more truly. In verse 6, we're told God graciously gives wisdom. It takes work. It's learned from the Father. And yet at the same time, it is God's gracious gift. What we discover, God gives. God's the ultimate primary source, but he works through parents, mentors, ministers even, to give wisdom. Discovery and revelation then are inseparable. Friends, I, I want you to get a hold of this. God's gracious gift is not oppo- of wisdom is not opposed to our hard work. Sometimes we can ask for wisdom, like James says, and then we sort of sit back and wait for it to magically appear in our lives. We should ask for wisdom, but Proverbs says it takes work. Store it up in your heart. Learn it. Work at it. God says, as we come to know him, he stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the ways of his saints. God himself is our shield. Knowing him is our protection. Friendship with God is sustaining. And then you see in verses 9 through 11, the second, then you will understand, we see that friendship with God is also transforming. Personal knowledge of God leads to right behavior in human relationships. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity and every good path. Fearing the Lord and knowing him is tied up with righteousness, justice, and equity. Knowing God and how we treat others are are, are interconnected in a way that we can't pull apart. And so if you don't know God rightly, if you think God's fundamentally severe and just waiting to scold people who get out of line, it's going to shape the way you treat people around you. It'll shape how you parent. that You're fundamentally strict, not gracious and forgiving. On the other hand, you may have behaviors, attitudes, habits, addictions in your life that are stopping you from knowing God better. And you need to walk the walk in order to know God. You see verse 10, uh, uh, verse 6 says, for wisdom, the Lord gives wisdom. Verse 10, for wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. To pull together these three references to wisdom in the chapter, verse 2 says the Father's teaching is wisdom. Verse 6 says God gives wisdom. Verse 10, wisdom will come into your heart. To arrange in logical order, God gives wisdom as a gracious gift through the teaching of parents and godly mentors. And the end goal is not that it would just be some external lesson that you learn, but it gets into your heart and it transforms your life. That this knowledge, knowing God, would be pleasant to you. A pleasant, it's a, it's a taste word. It's saying that, like David said in Psalm 19, that it, your word is sweeter than honey. That's the kind of image here. That knowing God would be sweet to you. This is what Jonathan Edwards talks about when he talks about the religious affections. That we would have an affection for God, a delight in God. This wisdom getting inside us and transforming our affections 
is the promise that runs throughout Scripture. This is what Moses talks about in Deuteronomy when he says, if you repent and return to the Lord, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. It's a weird image. Uh, I think the Deuteronomy teachings are online, though, so you can find out what that means in Deuteronomy 30. Uh, The Lord will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. It's what Jeremiah and Ezekiel are talking about when they talk about removing the heart of stone and giving you a heart of flesh. About God writing his instructions on your heart. It's what Jesus talks about with Nicodemus when he says you need to be born again. You need this renewed inner life. Verse uh, 8 says God guards the path of justice. He watches over the way of the saints. And now do you see what verse 11 says? Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you. God guards and protects his saints and watches over them by, in part at least, transforming their character so that they have discretion and understanding and can avoid various pitfalls. So wisdom takes work, but it is also God's gift. It takes hard work and diligent attention to grow in discretion and understanding, but that's the means God uses to protect us. And in the Gospels, we see this same pattern in Jesus' own life. Luke tells us twice that Jesus grew and became strong and filled with wisdom, that he increased in wisdom. And part of how Jesus grew in wisdom was by learning the scriptures. In the Gospels, there's about 1,800 verses that directly quote something Jesus is saying. And in 180 of those verses, Jesus is quoting the Old Testament. So in a full 10% of the words of Jesus that we have preserved, he's quoting scripture. And you'll notice when Jesus is walking around, he's not lugging a suitcase full of a bunch of scrolls and then unscrolling it and reading. He has scripture committed to heart. We see when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness and on the cross, he doesn't call down armies of angels. What does he do? He turns to God's word that sustains him. And so we're following Jesus' model when we work at wisdom. I'll wrap up uh, quickly here, but uh, I do want to get to one more point, and I do want to make a practical application, so bear with me for a moment. If wisdom is applying all that we know about God to every area of life, what does that look like practically? One thing it looks like is asking ourselves simply, what is God doing in this situation? How is God at work in this situation, and how can I participate in that? A simple question like that totally transforms conflict, for example. Okay, if you're dealing with a, uh, a child who wants to fight, a grumpy spouse, an angry neighbor, and you pause for a minute and you say, what's God trying to do in this person's life? And how can I participate in that? It totally changes how you're going to respond to that person. It shapes how we think about our situations. Well, the second half of this chapter, and and trust me, it won't be the second half of the sermon. We'll go quickly here. The father is showing the son, developing this sort of character is for your good. He says, if you have this transformed character, if you give yourself to my teaching, and you give yourself to wisdom, and wisdom comes into your heart and transforms you so that you have discretion and understanding, that will deliver you both from evil men and from tempting women. It will deliver you from the temptation of easy money and easy sex. Uh, and so it's, it's wisdom that will deliver you. Wisdom will deliver you. Wisdom will guard your way. 
verses uh, 12 through 15, the first of these two, uh, the father talks about evil men, men who have forsaken the path of uprightness. That is to say they were brought up in the covenant community, they were taught the right ways to live, and yet they abandoned that, and their marking feature is that their speech is perverted. Uh, that is to say their speech is upside down, it's twisted. It says what's bad is good and what's good is bad. Okay, the father leaves this intentionally open. This could be coarse joking, this could be uh, business practices that are technically legal but exploit the, your customers, take advantage of others. All these sorts of ways that we say what's bad is good. Do you notice he says that they are, their, their affections are totally twisted. They rejoice in doing evil. They delight in the perverseness or the twistedness of evil. Well, the father's saying, if God gives you wisdom and fear of the Lord, and if it's in your heart so that it transforms you, so that you, uh, the knowledge of God is what's pleasant to you, then these twisted ways of speaking and living are not going to be attractive to you. Likewise, the second thing that wisdom can deliver us from is sexual temptation. In verse 16 through 19, so you'll be delivered from the forbidden woman. This is a character that's going to keep coming up in the book of Proverbs. So chapter 5 through 7 uh, have continual repeated warnings about the forbidden woman. Fathers, notice, the, son, the, the, uh, the father in Proverbs doesn't pull his punches. He has blunt, frank, explicit, challenging talks with his son. And if our sons are going to grow up and be able to live wisely in the area of sexuality, we can't be squeamish about having blunt conversations with them. Mind you, this is not an ancient double standard. But remember, the framework of the book is a, is a series of talks from a father to the son. And so we need to, we take on the role of the son. And that means for women and daughters, there's an analogous application. Watch out for forbidden men, for smooth talkers. What does it mean that this woman is forbidden? Uh, the language simply means that she is foreign or she's outside of the circle of proper relationships. That is to say, she belongs to someone else, not you, and so you have no business taking up with her, however smooth her words might be. Let's pause for a minute, though, on verse 17. We see that like the evil men who have abandoned the paths of uprightness, she also has abandoned the companion of her youth and forgotten the covenant of her God. Those are bad things. And yet, in what she's abandoned, we see a picture given to the son here of what a healthy marriage should look like. Her husband is not simply called her husband, but the companion of her youth. This word for companion, it's an intimate friend, a close friend. And so the picture of marriage is that you're meant to have this intimate friendship, a close friendship between spouses, between uh, these equal partners in the marriage relationship. But then it also says that she has forgotten the covenant of her God. That our marriage vows are a covenant, not simply a, a, a convenient arrangement for the time being. They're a covenant, and they're a covenant before God. I've been reading a book this week, and uh, let me see if I can remember the language that it uses. Uh, our society, we say everything until further notice. Yes, uh, uh, I will marry you until further notice, until something better comes along. Yes, I'll take this job until further notice. I'll be a member of this church until further notice. If something better comes along, a better church opens next door, I'll go there. And that's the mindset we have for all of our commitments 
in modern society, and yet marriage is something totally different. It's saying here is a covenant relationship before God. I'm getting ready to do uh, Ellie and Jordan's wedding in a few weeks, and I'm going to ask them something like this. Do you promise in the presence of God and these witnesses to be her faithful, loving, and devoted husband so long as you both shall live? That's a covenant relationship between intimate friends. Well, the father warns his son because what may seem like easy, no-strings-attached sex, he says, is in fact a path that leads to death. Her house sinks down to death, her paths to the departed. None who, uh, Proverbs is actually a bit more explicit here, it says none who go into her will come back. It's like she herself is a portal to death. So Proverbs is, in chapter 2 here, it's saying, seek wisdom because it shapes your character. And if you have right character, you will be guarded against various temptations. Just like uh, Proverbs chapter 1 we saw last week, Proverbs 2 ends then with a concluding, overarching summary statement. Like Psalm 1, do you see there's two ways? So you will walk the way of the good and keep to the paths of the righteous. For the upright will inhabit the land and those with integrity will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land and the treacherous will be rooted out. The father is saying to his son, look, at the end of the day, there's two directions you can head. One is the paths of righteousness, seeking godly wisdom, seeking to know God. And that leads to life, flourishing, health. On the other hand, there's dark, devious, crooked paths that ultimately lead to death. How do you know if you're on the wise path? Well, wisdom is the path that leads to life that's given, uh, it follows the path of wisdom that's given by God through the Father's words. It must be internalized so it transforms our lives so that knowing God is pleasant to us, so that we delight in knowing the Lord. So as we end, I just want to ask you to do a bit of self-evaluation. Where are you at in this process? Are you seeking wisdom? Wisdom takes work. Are you seeking it more than silver, that is money and wealth, more than passing pleasure, more than success? Are you asking God for wisdom? Are you storing up God's word in your heart? Are you being diligent in God's word to learn his wisdom? Wisdom takes work. Are you working for it? But as we've seen, wisdom starts with knowing God through Jesus. Some of your friends maybe don't know God, don't know Jesus. He stands ready, uh, uh, open, arms. He wants to know you. God would like to be your friend, as it were, and Jesus makes the way open for a relationship with God. Others of you, you'd say, yeah, I know God. I grew up in the church. I pray. But do you have a personal relationship with God? Is that what you delight in? Is it sweeter to you than honey? More precious than gold? Is that what you delight in? Is your fellowship with God? Your personal relationship with God? Where are you at in this wisdom process in your character being formed? Let's pray.
Gracious Lord, we thank you that you are a good and loving God who delights to give your good gifts to those who ask. In your word, you say you will give us wisdom. You will give us knowledge and understanding. That you have sound wisdom stored up for us. That you yourself will be like a shield to your people. And yet, Lord, you don't just give this to us sitting back like couch potatoes. You call us to work for wisdom. And so may we, Lord, adopt these attitudes that the Father in Proverbs 2 commends to his Son. May we seize hold of your word and not let go of it. May we treasure it up in our hearts. May we value your word above all else and seek to be faithful to your word even when it's difficult. Lord, we live in a society that celebrates easy money, easy sex, exploiting others, walking in ways that are ultimately treacherous. We live in a society that even calls what is evil good and what is good evil. Give us the courage and commitment to follow your word, even in the face of a culture that might mock us for it. Let us pursue true wisdom even if it might seem like foolishness to those who look on. Lord, above all, we ask that your wisdom, that knowing you, that fear of you, the awe and intimacy would come into our hearts and that our knowledge of you would transform us so that our desires, our affections, what's pleasing to us would be changed. We offer, we offer these prayers in the name of your Son, who is wisdom, become flesh for us. And we ask that by your Holy Spirit you would be at work doing this work within us. Amen. As we prepare to come to the Lord's table, let us confess together our faith using the words of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 90. I ask you, Christian, how is the word to be read and heard that it may become effectual to salvation? That the word may become effectual to salvation, we must attend thereunto with diligence, preparation, and prayer. Receive it with faith and love, lay it up in our hearts, and practice it in our lives.